Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Leviticus chapter 23. In this chapter, I've been kind of excited about doing this chapter. It's, it's the feasts of the Lord. And uh, I made a little, I was thinking about him working through this study. And I thought, you know, don't miss your appointment. You go, what are you talking about? Well, we'll explain it or I'll explain it when we get to it. So Leviticus chapter 23, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to that, that'd be great. And we're going to start out here with verse uh, 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So the word feasts in the Hebrew, it refers to a fixed time, uh, a season, and uh, uh, specifically a, a festival. But it comes from a root word, and the root word is to make an appointment. So thus, we're speaking of talking about appointments. So these feasts are really God's appointments with the children of Israel. And there are seven major feasts on the calendar. And we're going to be looking at them as they're, as they're spelled out in this, in this chapter. These are, you know, if God made an appointment with you, you'd think it'd be kind of significant, right? You don't want to miss that appointment. And so these are very significant for the children of Israel. And so the Lord says, uh, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Now, that's not a word we use very often either. And a convocation, it literally means something called out like a public meeting, but it can can also mean a rehearsal. Isn't that interesting? So we have these appointments from God and we have a rehearsal. Well, a rehearsal for what, you might ask? I hope somebody's asking that. <laughs> Paul kind of alludes to it in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says this, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You know, we all cast a shadow, don't we, when we're out in the sunlight uh, or in front of a strong light or whatever. A shadow is really, it's cast by an object and it, it represents the form of the object. But, you know, sometimes you look at a shadow and it could, it, depending on the angle of the sun or the angle of the light, it can either be a cast a long shadow, you know, make you look like you're 10 feet tall, or it can, it can be a real short shadow. And so the shadows, sometimes they're never, well, I say probably always, they're never an exact representation of the object. And if you look at the shadows themselves, they're always dark, right? You just see the shape. You don't see the object itself. And so what Paul is saying is these festivals, the Sabbaths, all these things, they're a shadow. So there's a form there that you see, but the object, or he says the substance, which would be the object, is Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So these feasts, uh, these are the shadows themselves. And the, the prophetic fulfillment, of course, it all points to Christ. And we'll be looking at this morning. He is the substance of these feasts and of these shadows. And so we see Jesus Christ pictured differently in all of these uh, different ways throughout these feasts. But it, remember, again, they're a convocation. So they're also a rehearsal, a rehearsal for prophetic events. 
specific time, uh, specific events in the timeline of man's history, and they're significant. They're life-changing offense, uh, excuse me, events. And my goal this morning is to identify these prophetic events, these rehearsals. We'll look at the rehearsals and we'll see what, what, are the, what are they rehearsals for. And like I mentioned earlier, there's seven major feasts on the Jewish calendar. Now there's a lot of feasts, but there's seven major ones. And four are in the spring and early summer. So right around the time today, like this is the beginning of March, it'd be somewhere in between March and April where would be these first four major feasts. And then of course the, the summer one uh, would be probably May, June. That's the fourth one. And then there's a break in the, in the Jewish calendar for several months until the fall. And then there's three more festivals ma or major feasts in the fall around the September, October timeframe. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned that these are all rehearsals, and the first four have been prophetically fulfilled, I believe, in the first coming of Christ. The last three have not been prophetically fulfilled yet, but they will be uh, around, and I'm going to use the term Christ's second coming, but it, they're all around what's termed Christ's second coming, and I'll explain that as we get to it. But before the Lord instructs Moses about the seven feasts, that he first reminds them to observe the Sabbath. Look at verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the, uh, excuse me, but the seventh day is a Sabbath rest of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So just like the feast of the Lord, the Sabbath also is a shadow cast from an object. And just like the feast of the Lord, the substance of the Sabbath is Christ Jesus himself. Now, the Sabbath was to remind the children of Israel how God created the earth in six days and then he rested on the seventh. And so it was a day of rest. And so the children of Israel, likewise, they were to work six days and then rest on the seventh. By the time Christ's ministry came about on earth after Christ was born and, he, and then he, he started ministering to, to people before his crucifixion, by that time the Sabbath had been uh, distorted and the, the, the laws regarding it had been distorted and misapplied by the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, they had misapplied it to the point where it actually was work, very hard work to rest. I mean, there was, you just had to really pay attention to what you couldn't do. And, you know, if they saw you, if, if, if you even spit on the ground, no, that's kind of gross, but some people do. If you spit on the ground, that was working because you were like bulldozing with your saliva, the dirt, you know, so you couldn't spit. I mean, you, there was so, they made it so, so much that you had to kind of really work at not working, basically. You had to work hard at resting. You had to be careful to not violate in some minute way. Well, like the Feast of the Lord, the Sabbath was a holy convocation. It was a rehearsal. What is it a rehearsal for? Well, it's a rehearsal for the rest that you and I find in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews talks all about it. When we rest, it's when we rest from our labors of trying to earn our own righteousness. Jesus Christ paid it all. It's one of the songs we sang this morning. I don't have to do anything. I can just rest in Christ's salvation, trust him by faith. And so that's what the picture is. And so the children of Israel were reminded to also observe the weekly Sabbath. 
a day of rest. So now we get to the first feast, and that is the feast of Passover there, described in verse 5. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Now, if you've ever watched the movie, uh, uh, oh boy, the Charlton Heston one, you guys know, the Ten Commandments, there we go. You probably are familiar with that, with what was going on, and of course, if you went to Sunday school, or maybe you've read your Bible, you know the story, right? The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God was delivering them from Egypt, and after, the, after all these plagues that he had inflicted on the, on the Egyptians, there was one more plague that he was going to inflict on them, that was the death of the firstborn. And so what God commanded Moses to tell the people was to take the blood of a lamb and they were to, they were to put it, apply it to the doorposts and the lintel of their house. And that night, the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and it, wherever it saw the blood applied to the posts on the doorposts and the lintel, it would literally pass over that house. And the firstborn within that household would be spared. That was the shadow, but it was actually pointing to what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. Right when Jesus would die on the cross, he was the Passover lamb of God that was slain. His blood being shed on that wooden cross literally provided for your and my redemption. What's interesting about that whole uh, preparing for the Passover you know, the Passover lamb was to be selected on the 10th of Nisan, which was the first month on the Jewish calendar. And so they were, to, they, were to, they were to select their lambs, and of course the lambs had to be without spot or blemish. So they would select their lambs on the 10th, and then they would inspect it basically until Passover. And that would be on the evening of the 14th, between the evenings of the 14th of Nisan. Well, if you go back, Jesus Christ himself presented himself on the 10th of Nisan on Palm Sunday when he came to Jerusalem. And so during that week, everybody's trying to, trying to figure out how they can entrap Jesus and seeing if there's something wrong with him, and no one could. They could find nothing wrong, no spots, no blemishes. You know, you have the scribes, the Pharisees, they couldn't, they couldn't pin anything on Jesus. They did some false accusations. Uh, Pilate himself said, I find nothing wrong with this man. In fact, even Judas, after he betrayed Christ, he went back with remorse to the, to the temple and said, man, I, I betrayed innocent blood. So this whole time they were looking at Christ and no spots and no blemishes. And he was crucified between the evenings of the 14th of Nisan. So Christ's crucifixion is a prophetic fulfillment of the feast of Passover. Now, there's something kind of interesting that I came across. You know the story of Noah's Ark, right? In Genesis 8, verse 4, we're told something kind of significant. We're told, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. You might go, well, why, why do they have to know exactly when did the ark uh, rest on the mountains of Ararat? Well, at the tenth, excuse me, at the time of the flood, the seventh month was called Abib, and it was on the original Jewish calendar. Um, uh, by the original Jewish calendar, Passover is held on the fourteenth of Abib, right? And uh, 
but with the calendar, excuse me, God reset the calendar. I, I, mean, I think I've just messed that up. But basically, the seventh month here is uh, the month of Abib on the original calendar. Well, in Exodus chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 2, God is giving the original command for the Passover to the children of Israel. And he says this, he says, This month shall be the, your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And so the first, uh, the first month... The 14th of, excuse me, the 14th of Abib, the, that date that the ark, well, the ark rested on the 17th, excuse me. The 14th of Abib is now the 14th of Nisan. In other words, God reset the calendar. The first, the seventh month is now the first month. So the ark rested on the first month, according to later on in history. Um, and if you go to the new calendar, the first, the first Passover is instituted on the 14th of Nisan, and the ark rested on the 17th of Nisan. Well, Jesus Christ was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, and he resurrected on the 17th of Nisan. So it's just kind of an interesting, an interesting thing. The same day of the year the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat was the same day of the year that Jesus rose from the dead. Why do I bring this up? Good question. <laughs> well, when the flood ended, that was a new beginning for Noah and all those that were on the ark. You think about that the same time of the year, March. You know, March is a time of new beginning. I don't know how many of you are excited this morning to go outside and go, man, I don't even need a coat. I brought a coat just in case, because you never know in Minnesota, right, how the weather changes. But, you know, it's an exciting thing to start thinking, wow, pretty soon, of course, you get a little maybe overexcited. Of course, if you're a snowmobile guy, you're probably disappointed, so sorry, Chad. But, <laughs> but, but really, it's exciting. It's like, man, all these things that start happening. Well, it was a new beginning for the, for the people on the ark when they came out. Uh, and, you know, spring is the time of new beginnings. And Christ's resurrection marks a new beginning for all those who put their trust in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So that was the first feast. Well, let's look at the second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's in, described here in verses 6 through 8. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering uh, made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So immediately following the Feast of Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what that commemorated was when the children of Israel, at the end of the Passover, the next, the next night or the next day, they had to leave Egypt, and they had to leave in haste, and, uh, and they couldn't leave, like their bread couldn't rise because they just had to go. So the bread was unleavened at that point. And so this is commemorating the time when the children of Israel had to leave Egypt in haste following the Passover. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. So this is what that commemorated. Now what's interesting here is that leaven is a picture of sin. And so what the Jews did in, in preparation for it, um, and they do it even today. If you're a Jewish person, you were celebrating the Passover, they, they searched the house for any kind of leaven. 
and they get rid of any kind of leaven or any kind of yeast in the house. And the parents will typically leave a little bit so that the little children in the house can find something, you know, give them something to do. And so they find the little piece of leaven. But that's, that was the procedure that they did to get rid of all the leaven out of the house. And even today, when they have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they use the matzah, which is unleavened bread. And the matzah itself that's used in the feast, it's got stripes on it from being on the oven racks, and it's also pierced. And it's quite an interesting picture, I think, of Jesus Christ. In fact, what they do with the middle, so they've got three pieces of matzah, and the middle one, they break it and they wrap it in, a, in, a, like in a napkin or a clean white cloth, and then they hide it in the house. And that sounds a lot like what happened after Christ's death. It's described in Matthew 27, verse 59. It says, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So Jesus Christ, you know, the unleavened one, the sinless one, was died and buried and Jesus himself said in John 6:48, I am the bread of life so Christ's death and burial I believe is a prophetic fulfillment of the feast of unleavened bread so that feast of unleavened bread it was a rehearsal for what would happen when Jesus Christ was crucified the next feast is the feast of first fruits and it's described there in verses 9 through 14 and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a male, of the, a male lamb excuse me, of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So this feast would begin on the day following the Passover Sabbath, um, which would be the first day of the week, which was a Sunday. This was most likely the first fruits of the barley harvest. And uh, what did it do? It, it commemorated the bountiful harvest the children of Israel would experience when they would go into the land of Egypt, or when they went into the promised land, you know, the land uh, of milk that flowed with milk and honey. So this was a, a feast of thanksgiving and was also an expectation of harvest to follow because it's the first fruits of a harvest. Well, again, I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a prophetic fulfillment of the feast of first fruits. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ was crucified on Passover. His body was laid in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And early in the morning on the first day of the week, the Feast of First Fruits, is when the women went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And they found the stone rolled away. And Jesus had risen from the dead. So what is First Fruits? It's a promise of a greater harvest to follow. And if you and I have ever been to a funeral, especially a funeral of a believer, 
Paul writes this, and a lot of times this is quoted at funerals. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, and, and because of his, there's a, there's a harvest to follow. And you and I, if you have a relationship with Jesus this morning, you're part of that harvest. We get to the next feast, the Feast of Weeks. It's also known in the New Testament as the Feast of Pentecost, described there in verses 15 to 22. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer um, a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two uh, wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You know, God did that for the children of Israel so that they would have compassion on those that were less fortunate than them. It was the first welfare program that God instituted, basically, in the land of Israel. Not to just take everything, but to leave something for the poor in the land. Well, the date of this feast was fixed to the date of the Passover for that particular year. So you were to start at the Passover Sabbath, count 49 days, which is seven weeks, plus one, and that would be your Feast of Weeks on the 50th day, and it always would follow, fall on a Sunday. Uh, and the New Testament, as I mentioned, calls it the Feast of Pentecost, which means literally the 50th day. Now, this was... The other feast of first fruits was associated with a barley harvest. This one was associated with the, the uh, wheat harvest. An interesting aspect of this uh, feast was they were to bake two loaves of bread with leaven and then wave them before the Lord. That's kind of interesting, right? Because we remember in the Bible, leaven is almost always associated with sin. Now, what's interesting is the Jewish writers believe that the two loaves of bread commemorated the giving of the tablets of the law at Mount Sinai. <coughs> Again, that's interesting because leaven is a symbol of sin. It just doesn't seem to quite fit, especially when I read something like Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Anyways, for the Jewish writers, the Jewish scribes, the scholars, the Feast of Weeks it commemorated the birth of the nation of Israel at the at once they received the law, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. That's when the nation of Israel was born. You recall what happened at that time? We went through in Exodus. 
At that time, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. He was up there for 40 days. God was talking to him. And then he uh, received the Ten Commandments. And then God said, hey, you better get down there. There's some noise going on. Of course, God knows what's going on. But Moses went down there and like, what's going on? Is there a party going on, you know? Well, it wasn't. You know what happened? They had, they had made a golden calf. They didn't know what happened to Moses, so they, they talked Aaron into, into uh, forming a golden calf. And then they were worshiping this golden calf. And there was all, all kinds of immorality and, and pagan worship going on around this calf. And so Moses, he said, hey, are any of you Levites with me? And all the Levites, they went, they went, they kind of like, you know, Moses basically drew a line in the sand, so to speak. And the Levites came over to the side where Moses was. And Moses said, hey, get your swords and kill all these people that are worshiping the golden calf. And the Bible tells us on that day, 3,000 people were killed. 3,000 people were killed. Now, the leaven doesn't seem to fit the picture for the law, in my mind anyways. The shadow, it seems like it's kind of a long shadow there until we consider the substance, the prophetic fulfillment. Then I think it fits perfectly. See, when we get to the book of Acts, that first Pentecost feast uh, after Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven, you remember what happened then? Remember the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples gathered there in the upper room and they were all speaking in tongues and praising the Lord and, and, and people were like, man, they, they heard all this commotion. Everybody's rushing in there and some people were mocking and saying, you know, oh, they're, just, they're just drunk, you know, basically. And, and Peter gets up. Peter's filled with the Spirit for the very first time and he preaches a message to the people and, and there's so many people accepted the Lord, 3,000 people. So the birth of the law... 3,000 died. The birth of the church and the Holy Spirit descended. 3,000 people received eternal life. What a, what a beautiful picture there. And I think that's because the Bible tells us that the letter, the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. So I believe the birth of the church at Pentecost is a prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And when we consider the prophetic fulfillment, those two loaves of leavened bread, it, to me it seems to make more sense because the two loaves, you know, they were probably made with the same ingredients, made from the same lump of dough. And you think about the church now. The church is made up of two groups of people, right? Jews and Gentiles, but we're both saved the same way. We're both saved in the same way. We've both been given the Holy Spirit at the time of our rebirth. And you know, those loaves baked with leaven makes a lot more sense because look around the room here. You know, the church, maybe you think that this church is perfect or maybe you've been looking for a perfect church. Keep, I'm sorry, but the church isn't perfect. I don't think you'll, well, I know you won't find a perfect church. We're all sinners. It's made up of sinners. And so that, that those two loaves, I think, fit the picture of the Jews and the Gentiles and they're filled with leaven because we're sinners and the church isn't, isn't pictured, uh, excuse me, isn't perfect. So we've gone through those first four feasts, and now there's a long gap in the Hebrew calendar of feasts, at least for the major feasts, until the fall. And so the next feast we're looking at this morning is described in verses 23 through 25, and that's the Feast of Trumpets. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest. 
a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the first day of the seventh month, it's also known as Tishri. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But it's the start of Israel's civil year, known as Rosh Hashanah, which means basically the head of the year. And this feast is observed for two days on Tishri 1 and 2, but they call it one long day. It begins a 10-day season of repentance known as uh, Ya Amin Nora Im, <laughs> or in the days of awe, um, or the days of awe, I should say. And it ends on Tishri 10, that's the Jewish month, which is Yom Kippur. It's marked, as we've read, by the blowing of trumpets. Now, what's interesting is the precise instruments are not mentioned here. And I was scouring through, well, what kind of instruments is it? Well, some believe it's the silver trumpets that the, that the Israel was to make. Others believe it's the shofar, which is a long ram's horn. I tend to believe that myself personally. The Feast of Trumpets commemorated the week of creation. And it was a New Year celebration, basically. So the horn was blown long and steady as a call for the gathering of the people. And so there's some people that believe that this the prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets is the regathering of the Jews to the land of Israel. And you know what? I can't argue with that. I'm not a Jewish scholar. So, you know, it could very well be that that is also a prophetic fulfillment of that. However, I personally believe that the rapture of the church is a prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. There is a long gap between uh, between those those festivals, right? The last one was in the be very beginning of summer, and now we've got this long gap until the fall. And you know, prophetically, there's been a long gap between the fulfillment of the last, uh, the, the, the Feast of Pentecost, and what hasn't been fulfilled yet, the Feast of Trumpets. How long does that age last between those feasts? You know, that the, the Feast of Pentecost, it, it, inter er, it inaugurated the church age. You and I are living in the church age right right now. Well, how long does it last? When does the rapture of the church occurs? No one knows. No one knows. Except there are some hints. This feast occurred, actually it's not even a hint, but this feast occurred in the seventh month. And you know, you go through the Bible, seven's the number of completion. Paul said this, speaking about the children of Israel or the Jewish people. It says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And he's speaking to Gentile believers. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that's, a, that's, that's one way. We, we, we don't know the date or the hour, obviously, but we know that that church age, there's going to be a time when it's complete. God's the only one that knows that. And it's when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So if you think about it, it there's, there's one Gentile out there somewhere that has to accept Jesus Christ. And at some time, at some point, there's, that, that's going to be the last Gentile to receive Jesus Christ. And when he says, Lord, please, I repent of my sins. I put my trust in you for salvation. Poof, we're all out of there. So if you're here this morning <laughs> and you're holding us up, 
please, accept Christ this morning. I want to get out of here. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's interesting. People have tried to set dates for the rapture of the church, and they've always, always proven wrong. I personally will never, and if I ever do, stop me, throw a rock at me. You can take me out and rehearse stoning with me. But, you know, if I ever say, you know, I think it's this time, man, leave, because I, I, I'm, I'm off my rocks. I mean, I, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I'm <laughs> off my rocks. I just came up with a new term. I've lost a few screws. Listen, date setting for the rapture of the church, I believe, is very foolish. And the reason why is because Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, but of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So listen, if the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, doesn't even know, I think what makes us think that we're smarter than him and we can figure it out? So I, I just think it's foolish to set a date for the rapture. But I will say this. There is nothing on God's prophetic timeline that's preventing that from being fulfilled. There's, there's, there's not like we're waiting till something else happens. No, no, no. There's nothing waiting for Christ to come for his church. It could happen today. It could happen any moment. You're probably thinking, please do it now, Lord, so we don't have to listen to the rest of him. <laughs> All right. Listen, I mentioned at the beginning of my message that, you know, don't miss God's appointment. And this particular feast, the prophetic fulfillment of it, this is God's appointment for his church, for you and I, and you don't want to miss that appointment. How could a person possibly miss that appointment if it's going to happen, you know, it's just going to happen when it happens? Well, listen, there's one question you need to ask yourself. Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior this morning, you're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. You, may, you might even have a different belief. Well, I don't think it's going to happen. It doesn't matter what you or I believe. It's going to happen, <laughs> okay? And we're going to be taken out of here. But if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, let me put it this way. If it happens today, we've got some cool, awesome leftovers in our fridge. Have at it. If you ever wanted to pastor the church, this church, you're like, man, I could do a lot better job than Pastor Don. You can have it. If that happens, I, I'm hoping and praying there's nobody here at that time, and, and, and I'm trusting there won't be anybody here. But if you want to, you know, if you're if you're left behind, hey, that's up to you. I'm just being facetious, of course. But that's the only way you would miss it if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is God's appointment with you. He said it. It's a very significant appointment. You don't want to miss that appointment. Let's get to the next next feast. It's described in verses 26 to 32, the Day of Atonement. We also know it as Yom Kippur. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and, offering, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any uh, person who does not work, uh, who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. This was the holiest of all the days 
on the Jewish calendar. It was observed on the 10th of Tishri. It lasted two days. It was the only day that the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, of course, later on in the temple. On that day was when two goats were selected. One goat would be the goat for the sin offering. It would be sacrificed for sin. The other goat was called the scapegoat. That's where we get that term being a scapegoat. At that point, the elders, the, 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 the priests would lay their hands on the head of the scapegoat and they would confess the sins of the people of Israel, including them, their own sins. Then they would take this goat and it would be led out into the wilderness. And it was a picture of the removal of sin. So much of this Day of Atonement points to the finished work of the cross on Christ. His death tore the veil that separated you and I from the Holy of Holies. So now you and I, we can, the Bible says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can enter into the Holy of Holies at any time through the blood of Jesus Christ. They couldn't do that before under the old covenant. He's not only our sin offering, the, 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 the goat that was sacrificed for the sin offering, but just like the scapegoat, they confessed their sins over it, let it out into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of their sins. When you and I repent of our sins, Christ Jesus doesn't even just forgive us. The Bible says he removes our sins from us. Now, there's a lot of talking or a lot in the verses here describes afflicting your souls. And you think of a feast and you go, that doesn't sound like a very happy time. You know, it seems kind of, kind of like a, you know, hard to rejoice during a time when you're afflicting your souls. And what I believe prophetically is that the time, and it's described in, in the Bible as the time of Jacob's trouble, I think that's a fulfillment, a prophetic fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, the Great Tribulation is a prophetic fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. See, after the rapture of the church, the events of the 70th week of Daniel, it's described in Daniel chapter 9, they take place. And God's not finished with the nation of Israel. He still has a plan for them. But at that time when the church is raptured out of here, it's going to be a time of great affliction for the Jewish people. It's described in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hedad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. According to Paul in Romans 11.26, at that time, all Israel will be saved. All those who are alive at that time, they will recognize Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting for all this time. And they'll put their trust in Christ for their salvation. Well, we get to the last feast. The Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It's described in verses 33 through 34. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles uh, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an, off you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
On the eighth day you shall have a holy, holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to make an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, uh, besides all your vows, and besides your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts, of the Lord. This feast was the joyous, a very joyous time. All the harvests of Israel had been completed. All the crops had been stored a long time ago by then. It was a joyous commemoration of Israel's redemption from Egypt. And it was a reminder to them of the fulfillment of God's promise that he would bring them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But they were to remind themselves of that time that they went through the wilderness wandering when they were, or when they were uh, out of Egypt. So, this, so they make these booths. And, uh, you know, actually, if you go down, I've, I've seen it before. They, they do it down by the synagogue here in Rochester. I've seen a booth sitting out there before. If you go around the time of Sukkot, you'll see it out there. Maybe you have Jewish neighbors and they do the same thing. But they do that to this day. And they'll, so they'll put branches on the, on the like, kind of like a tent, basically. And, uh, and they leave spaces between it so that they can see the stars and the wind can blow in. And it was to remind them of their wilderness wanderings. And so what's the prophetic fulfillment of this? Well, I believe the, the 10,000, excuse me, the 10,000, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, it's known as the millennial reign of Christ, I believe that that is a prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you want to read more about the millennial age, it's fascinating. Read Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. There's many other Old Testament scriptures that, that describe what takes place during that time. But you know what's fascinating to me? What's fascinating to me is that the Feast of Tabernacles, it's going to be a required feast during the millennium for all the inhabitants of the world are going to be required to go to Jerusalem Anyone who's alive during the millennium, they're, they're going to be required to go to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Bible even describes consequences of a nation that doesn't go. It's not going to rain on their land. It's a fascinating uh, passage of Scripture. I believe it's in Zechariah 14. So we've looked at the first four feasts earlier. They were in the spring and summer. You know, I don't know, we get really excited about spring. I get excited about spring. Again, I know there's some snowmobilers that probably don't, but um, I get excited about spring. You know, it's interesting. I've kind of learned to get excited about spring because I grew up in California, 
And in California, it's like you don't see those changes in the weather, in the, in the, in the climate. There is a spring, there's blossoms, but it just the weather's so mild, you just take it for granted, you kind of miss it. In California, or in climates like that, you really have to pay attention for the spring. At least I did. I was kind of, you know, in my own little world anyways. But, um, but you really have to pay attention. But we get these last three feasts, and they're in the fall. And, you know, again, fall in California versus Minnesota, what a difference. Um, you know, the signs are so evident. You see leaves beginning. I, in fact, I start get kind of bummed out when I see the colors. I know it's going to be, a, you know, it's going to be beautiful once all the leaves are, you know, fully colored and everything. But for me, it's like, oh man, winter is coming, you know. And it's like, oh, and then I got to rake up all these things when they fall, and it's just like, so you know, some people just love autumn. I do love autumn. I, I'm no mosquitoes, and just you know, there's so many things to love about autumn. But it's so short. It's like gone like that. And you think about that, you know. The fulfillment of these prophecies. We have the the ones that were fulfilled, I believe, around Christ's death, burial, resurrection, the birth of the church, and that we have this long period of time until the Feast of Trumpets. And I think when I think of the fall, you know, I, I look at that and go, you know, it's been how many two thousand plus years the, the the church age that we're in right now. When are you returning for your church, Lord Jesus? And I think just like the fall, you know, you start seeing the colors changing. Well, I tell you, you pick up a newspaper and start reading the news and stuff. You go, man, uh, things are changing. And now it's exciting, right? It's exciting because, you know, man, Jesus come back any time. But you see the coloring and stuff. You see the days start growing shorter in the fall. And it's just like, man, it's just there's a new season coming. And for you and I, there's also there's a ripeness. Everything's ripe, right? Uh, it's time to, like, you know, get the last year tomatoes. That's usually the last harvest, right? To get the last year tomatoes in and then, you know, before the first frost and all that stuff. Um, so it is with you and I. You look at the times that we're in. The days are getting shorter. I really believe it. That there's there's a ripeness to what's happening in the world right now. That for me, it's like, man, Jesus could come back any time. So for you and I, what are we to do? You know, we're to be prepared. We're to, we're to have a an attitude of expectation, expect expectancy. Excuse me. But you know, so much what you and I do in this world right now, it's a rehearsal for what's going to happen in the next age to come. How you and I live our lives, it's going to have a direct impact on what happens to us in eternity and how, we're, how we live our lives in eternity. So we really want to be thinking about that and, and, and preparing. Again, it's a rehearsal. So you're working at, you know, trying to get things right and, and stuff. And so for you and I as believers, man, getting in the Word of God, spending time in His presence, fellowshipping with other believers, sharing your testimony with people around you, living like a Christian. You know, we, we saw, how many of you guys saw that movie last night? Well, I know quite a few of you did. But that was one of the questions in the movie. The guy asked, the guy that was in the hospital asked the guy, you know, who are you? And the guy's like, well, I'm a, I'm a coach, you know, and I'm this, I'm that, and that. And the last thing he says, I'm a Christian. It's like, that was convicting, right? That's the, that's the first thing. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So, so you and I, we're to live our lives that way and knowing that Jesus could return at any time. And so what we're going to do now, because it's the first, uh, first uh, Sunday of the month, we're going to have communion. And we're going uh, to celebrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to go ahead and come on up. And then we're going to pray.